Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In this third episode, we continue to focus on the power of evidence and the disconnect between gender transformative language and action in global health. Last week, we heard from guests in Benin, Cambodia and South Africa, who shared their views on health systems and what health system transformation for gender equality looks like. This week, we hear from those evaluating health programs and hear perspectives on the utility of gender transformative language and its role in ensuring gender-related barriers and needs are actually addressed in health programs. In many cases, gender is dressed more than addressed. It's not uh, working on the uh, and reconstruction of gender to, to ensure equal access to rights. It's not there. It's not there. Even if the language is there, even if you find reference to Beijing, to uh, SDG 5, because it's, it's a fashion, you know, sometimes it's just a fashion and not really uh, aiming to, to ensuring gender equality and enjoyment of equal rights. Joining us in this episode is Faiza Ben-Hadid a clinical psychologist and anthropologist with more than 40 years of professional experience and research in gender auditing, monitoring and evaluation, and gender mainstreaming in health policies and programs. Faiza has worked in her native Algeria, as well as within the broader Middle East and North Africa region, in addition to working globally with organizations including IPPF, UNFPA, the EU, Kautar, UN Women, and the World Bank. I couldn't deny that there was a lot of progress in my region. You know, now we have the government that have endorsed the population policies. They have endorsed Cairo Plan of Action, Beijing Plan of Action, the Agenda 2030. You know, this is clearly stated in the policy. We do have issues with institutions. We do have issues with budget because until now, the, the, the sensitive program either health and reproductive health or gender equality, gender mainstreaming, are supported by international organizations, you know. But uh, the government is not putting a lot of effort, energy and finances in their plan. There was some initiatives also, but unfortunately, when the government changed, the initiatives are stopped or, you know, they're just forgotten. I do remember the first experience in Morocco was uh, about gender and mainstreaming, was about women empowerment. And it, it was the first experience where Ministry of Health decided, because the, 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 the new minister of the, of the Ministry of Health was the, the, the previous minister of the women mechanism, you know. So she brought with her... The, her vision of gender mainstreaming. This is the ideal situation when we put someone who, who has the experience, who has the conviction of gender equality and gender mainstreaming to go throughout the sector, you know, as the as ideal situation. But I know from now that 
it's not there as it was in the in the beginning of the 2000 you know we have the same experience in Iraq for instance also where where the ministry of health had the initiative on gender mainstreaming in health services and plan etc there are some initiatives but i couldn't say this is success story because the story has stopped at one at one step either because of funds or of political will that have just disappeared. I'm sorry for that, to saying that, but maybe I was, I'm not sad, I'm not pessimistic, but I am realistic, you know. It, it has started here and there. We do have the, the situations that have changed totally. You know, I remember one time we had a meeting with an Italian university and the lady said, I am so impressed because the progress we made in Europe and the, in, and the West was so slow comparatively to the, the, to the progress is made in the MENA region, which is true. But maybe we are more ambitious. We, are, we, are, we have less patience. You know, we want more th- things. Maybe it will come. I mean. Joining us in this conversation is Manuel Contreras Urbina, who works at the World Bank as a senior social development specialist for the Latin American Caribbean region on gender-based violence. Manuel has 25 years of experience in gender and gender-based violence research and programs. I wanted to start off by asking if you could tell us a little bit, what does health, well, gender transformation in health programming look like or mean for you? Sure. Thank you, Johanna. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Well, gender transformation, from my point of view, means that in a health program means that the health program is addressing some of the issues related to gender inequality. And especially that uh, this program in any kind of like area is trying to combat all these different types of discrimination against women and girls. And basically the program tries to transform some of the gender norms that are discriminatory, that are harmful for women and girls. Basically, it means to really carry out some actions, activities that try to confront these gender stereotypes, that confronts inequality, that confronts basically the patriarchal order of the society. So any kind of like health program that address these issues in any area of health, it can be any like nutrition, sexual and reproductive health, maternal health, etc., is including any of these potential activities, actions that address inequality. And can I just pick up on something you said there? You, For example, you have these two programs. One is labeled gender transformative based on the approach and what it hopes to achieve versus one perhaps labeled gender transformative in terms of what it actually manages to change. Do you think it's right to use the label with regards to both kinds of health programs? One, you know, in terms of aspirations and approach versus the other, which is more outcome focused? I think this is the at least first step, you know, if you don't have a gender sensitive language, 
in the program. That means yani, it's more than blind. Yani, it's not there. Yani, it's, it's just forgotten. You know, when I do the audit, you use, you use the, the, the term of evaluation. I use the term of gender audit. You know, when I do the audit, this is the first thing that I, I look for. And I do it quantitatively, you know, even quantitatively, because it's very important when you have a, a text of, for instance, uh, 200 pages, and uh, you, do, you do have, for instance, three times or four times you have the reference to gender or to equality or even equality is, is related to, uh, to any uh, to, to S, something else, not to gender equality or even to women and men. You know, it's very, very specific to health program that particularly reproductive health program, they refer to a population, you know. They see citizens. We don't know which citizen they are talking uh, for. And so, so it's very important. This is the first step in the evaluation to ensure that at least, at least th- there is men and women in this program, you know, and the reference to the other principles, either human rights of women and men or gender equality or gender equity or women empowerment. You know, this is a jargon that is essential to be there to. To, to give us, you know, so the first light, if I may say, of this uh, gender sensitive before saying it transformative, because it's a, it's the most ambitious step of gender mainstreaming and the integration of equality. Yeah, this is a good question because you are right. Some of the programs, just because they are addressing some benefits for for women, for example, for women and girls, they call themselves gender transformative, and that's not necessarily the case. When a program is gender transformative, it's really trying to address the gender norms and the roots of inequality. So that that means that includes some actions that try to combat this inequality in terms of power and control against women and girls. However, I would like to say that there are several programs that address gender issues, right? If that means at the end that they transform the gender society or not, sometimes it's hard to assess. It's hard to to know if they really were able to do that because the transformation of gender norms takes long time. It's something that we know that the programs that really transform social norms are overall like long-term programs. We know that in general, uh, include several important actors of the society. Sometimes it means that they include a lot of financial and technical resources. So there are a lot of components, really, to transform gender norms. So I think it's even a little bit unfair just to say only the programs that really transform at the end we measure in, in indicators and then we see that they have a transformation of norms are the only ones that have like a gender approach or that can be the only ones who can be called gender transformative. I think overall, from my perspective, if a program is attempting to address some of these inequalities, it can be called a program that is using a gender transformative approach. Even if at the end, they include just probably some trainings to change attitudes of the beneficiaries or a campaign about changing social norms. Well, they are trying, right? It's very hard if we just focus on those who can really change the gender norms. Well, we will 
be probably with like a very few at the end. I think that's a very valid point. And I wondered if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about your experience evaluating health programs from a gendered perspective. Yeah, well, my area of expertise is in violence against women, gender-based violence in general. So the evaluations I've been involved are related to these topics and they have a focus of the evaluations and are to see at what extent the program was able to, a certain extent, reduce the levels of violence against women based on gender, but also if the programs were able to change some of these structural norms, patriarchal norms, or at least the attitudes of the beneficiaries. So... What does that mean? That means that one is that when we designed the evaluation, the central focus of the evaluation was to see at what extent the program was really able to have this transformation of, of norms, right? So that means to include qualitative and quantitative indicators that show some change in very in the roots of the gender-based violence in the roots of discrimination. So if the indicators show this change, well, that means that somehow the intervention or the program was su successful. But the evaluation also with a, having this gender lens, gender transformative approach, I would say that it's not just a technical activity. What I'm trying to say is that when we use this approach, our vision is not to say, you know, this works or not. That's not the idea. When you use this gender lens, you become the researcher, I think, becomes an activist. And the idea is that this knowledge transforms in some positive actions or components that improve the program and or help to design other programs in other areas, in other regions that serves at the end to the community. And that also at the end helps in reducing inequality. Again, it's not a technical activity necessarily. It is, but as this political activity that we have in mind when we include this gender approach, when we do evaluations. And for me, it's very important that this evidence is not just when we do the evaluation, it's not just a number to say, okay, the, the levels of violence decrease or not. It's not just that. It's much more complex than that, and it's much more comprehensive than that. It's to really analyze what, what parts of the program benefit women independently of this number. So that's why it's important to have the voice of the beneficiaries. It's important to have the voice of the people who run the program and to do this in a collaborative way that at the end helps to empower the program and empower women and girls that are beneficiaries and they empower the community. That's the ultimate goal. And not just to get a date and say at the end, this works, it doesn't work, end of the story. No. The idea of the evaluation is also to help in this transformation of gender. 
I wondered if in your experience, you might have found examples where there was a reduction, perhaps in violence, but maybe an increase in sort of an unintended consequence, negative impact that the program hadn't foreseen. So, you know, in some ways it could be considered improving things in one area, but actually perhaps there are unintended consequences that are not captured necessarily if you just look at one statistic. Have you come across that? And what has your experience been perhaps? Not really. In the ones that I've been involved directly, what I have seen is those programs who really don't have any, I mean, in these statistical indicators, in some of them, they don't have any change. You know, that after several years, you assess the indicators and you don't see any significant change, positive or negative. And sometimes that's conceptualized as a negative result, as a negative outcome, that some donors or stakeholders in general can think that a program do not show change in the main indicators. So what was the point, right? But I kind of disagree with that approach because, as I say, I think a program should be monitored from the beginning, from the design, and we should learn from that program from the beginning. And there are a lot of ways that we can measure if a program in the life of the program, at the end, the the objective is from the beginning of the evaluation that in the ideal scenario, the evaluation starts at the same time that the program, right? That's the idea of the entire monitoring and evaluation is at the same time that the program goes together with the, the life cycle of the program. That at the end, the main objective is to learn, is to learn from the program and to benefit the community and to empower the beneficiaries as part of this. Ideally, we monitor the program from the beginning and we can adjust the activities, the actions. And if there is some areas that can be adjusted, but again, at the end, it's not black and white. Like this is all good, this is all bad. So a lot of nuances that are important to analyze, to reflect, to measure to learn and improve. Faisal, what do you think audits of health programs can do to sort of support more ambitious programming to achieve more gender equitable health outcomes? I think we did our best, you know, as advocate, as expert, as evaluators. And we have trained people, we have a trained institution, we have advocated for, etc. But the main obstacles or the gap is about political will. And planning, you know, because at this stage of my experience is that the, the states are claiming they are uh, they are gender sensitive, they are working on gender equality, etc. But the political will is not really there. It's not really, really there, and gender equality is not yet considered as a priority for the overall development, not only for women, but for women and men, and for society as a whole. So the issue mainly is about planning, is, is about policy, and is about clear statement and clear action on this. We did our best. We continue to do our best, but it's not enough, including in terms of raising awareness, advocacy. I think, the, the, for instance, the United Nations made a lot with the UN reform, which aims to apply the human rights-based approach and the government access to the, accept to that and endorse it. 
But at, after the enthusiasm of the beginning of the reform, they just forget about it, you know. They just forgot about it. And now it's, uh, even if if the language is sometimes sensitive, again, it's not, it's only the language. Even if we consider the language as the main indicator of gender sensitiveness or gender transformative intention, if I may say, in the programs and the plans, but it's not enough. I think the, the health program should be multi-sectoral and it should be linked with other sectors or with other areas because we couldn't say, Minister of Health couldn't say only we are in charge of health services and health program. We couldn't interfere in the, for instance, right to decision-making of women or the respect of body integrity or all this cornerstone of the, of the gender equality and women empowerment. I think, for instance, women mechanism and women and health sector should work together because even to access to resources, okay, it's not enough to set up the plan uh, and programs in area of health and reproductive health, but should, we should also ensure that women can access to the services, transportation, income, uh, medical insurance. So this is maybe an, an ideal situation I'm talking for, but uh, sometimes we hear now this is the work of civil society. You cannot separate them. Health sector will will apply its own gender transformative program and social affairs their own, etc., etc., and the, the economy their own. So it has to be a vision. That means also gender budgeting, maybe, or I don't know. I think it's important to ensure that women have access to and control over resources if you, you, we want them to enjoy equally with men their health rights. And in communicating... Do you use this gender transformative language? Is it useful in communicating whether it's to the beneficiaries, whether it is to people implementing the health programs, designing the health programs? Yeah, there are different ways to communicate issues related to gender. This is a very good question. When I've been involved in this type of research and evaluations, ideally, you have a research uptake plan where you include different actions and different materials where you present your findings and the knowledge that you created to different audiences, right? So that's what we have done. And these audiences are like a variety of ones that you mentioned already, the donors, the stakeholders, decision makers at global level, regional level, local level, local authorities, the community. And again, there are different ways that you present this language of gender transformative approach. Like if you go with a UN organization to present the findings, UN Women, UNICEF, I mean, probably you are using the same language in terms of gender, what gender transformative means and gender roots of uh, gender inequality, patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing if you go and present this with women's rights organizations that for the most part, they are very aware of this terminology and they are actually, politically, they are pushing for the women's rights agenda and gender equality agenda. But that's not the case with all the actors, right? I mean, maybe some local authorities or you go on to present it to the police of a country or even a UN 
agency that is not as familiar as UN Women or UNFPA about gender, you probably need to use a different type of language to approach what means gender and these actions related to gender, to transformation of gender roles. There is a lot of resistance. We are still living in a patriarchal society and patriarchal institutions, right? I mean, in most of countries in the world, most of the institutions that we belong are patriarchal. So in that variety, you find some decision makers who still have internalized these gender discriminatory roles. And so you find some resistance about some transformation of gender, especially in some areas that are very sensitive. For example, I find sexual and reproductive rights very, very sensitive. Also, sometimes in some regions, communities, issues related to the division of economic roles can be sensitive. There are other areas that are less sensitive, for example, um, education or uh, political participation of women. There are less sensitive and people are more open to some transformation around that. What I have done or I have learned is that you need to find one, I mean, to, to analyze your audience that you want to disseminate your results, see what will be the best entry points for them to use the findings in order to really develop actions, that they are open to that actions. So sometimes this gender transformative language can be slightly different. You use it, for example, for some areas, but probably you don't use it in other areas that you know that can be more controversial. But I think the goal at the end is to create change, right? So ideally, you use these strategies to find the best way to communicate in a way to create impact, basically, and create change. Thank you for joining us in this podcast mini-series focusing on the power of evidence. If you haven't already, please visit the Gender and Health Hub website, where you'll find other podcast episodes related to the power of evidence, as well as a fantastic and provocative think piece by Andrew Malhotra on the misuse of gender transformative language and the impact this is having on advancing gender equality and global health. Also, look out for our next mini-series and corresponding think piece focusing on the power of feminist civil society. So do visit our website at www.genderhealthhub.org or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu or you can also find us on Twitter. Our UNUIIGH handle is at UNU underscore IIGH or our Gender and Health Hub handle, which is at Gender Health Hub. And if you do have feedback or suggestions, please email us. Our email is IIGH-info at UNU.edu. Thanks again for listening. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only.